The Space of Justice team wants to start this week's episode with a moment of silence, standing in solidarity with the people of Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, as they deal with the loss of 20-year-old Dante Wright, as well as 2nd Lieutenant Caron Lazario, who was forcibly pepper sprayed in Windsor, Virginia, both who are Black and Black Latino men, respectively, at the hands of police. Welcome back to Space of Justice. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, I'm your host, Michael Beth Second, and my pronouns are he, him, his. Today, I'm joined by three brilliant Black Durham-based artists, Brittany Barbie, Shay Hendricks, and Anthony Patterson. Alums of the now-defunct Documentary Diversity Project at Duke's Center for Documentary Studies, which was directed and coordinated by Courtney Reed Eaton and William Page, Brittany, Shay, and Anthony have a storied history with both the university and the city of Durham. In the wake of the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Daniel Prude, and the subsequent uprisings that happened, all three responded to the moment with work in public spaces. Today, we discuss that work, the responsibility they feel the university has to the Durham community, most notably with its Durham-based artists of color, and how their work makes spaces for representations of black and brown people, which societally have been dismissed. Thank you so much for joining me today, you three. Thank you. Brittany, do you mind getting us started today? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, where you are in relationship to Duke and Durham, your area and mediums of interest, your pronouns, and a fact about yourself that you find interesting. Hi, everyone. Um, it's so nice to be here today. Um, my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I am from Durham, North Carolina, born in 93. I'm a 90s baby. Um, and my relationship to Duke, um, so 2018, I was an emerging documentary artist. Um, from 2018 to summer 2019. And now currently I'm an arts and media intern at Center for Documentary Studies. Um, a little bit about myself. You know, that's a great, great reflection question that honestly, I really haven't, I haven't gave much thought, gave much thought to. Um, but I am a, a music head, uh, specifically in the terms of creating music. I love to create music. And my mediums of interest interest would be poetry, photography, and music. Um, and one fact that is interesting, I taught myself how to read music. That's, that's wow, thing. that's that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting fact. How long did that take? Um I mean it was a it was a progress thing. So my freshman year of high school was my first time ever taking a music class. And my teacher was like, what, is this your first time? Nobody taught you? I don't have time to teach you. You're going to teach yourself. And I really was interested in music and drums. So yeah, I just taught myself how to, how to participate and read. How to participate and read. I feel like that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole Tony Robinson self-help seminar right now. Teach yourself how to participate and read. <laughs> that is awesome. I love that. That is fantastic. Oh, uh, well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Shay, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Okay, I'm Shay Yeji. My pronouns are they and she. I am a Um, In relationship to Duke, I was a former EDA or emerging documentary artist under the Documentary Diversity Project at CDS, which is affiliated with them. And in relationship to Durham, I guess I could say I was raised here. I was born in North. My family is from North, but for the better part of my life, half of it, really, I've been been here. And what is a fun fact that you find interesting about yourself? Um, I'm an artist that's not restricted to one particular medium. Okay. Is that an interplay thing, or is that you finish a project and then go to the next thing? How does that work out for you? It really depends on how I'm feeling. I'm, I'm definitely interested in multiple things, so I don't really shy away from what I feel like doing, what I feel like, where I feel like my creativity needs to be based on, like, society's linear definitions of what a person should pursue. Like right now, I'm getting back into design and like fashion and graphics and stuff like that. And very recently, like previously, I was, I just released uh, an exhibit which is full of mixed media works in progress that are meant to become painted. That's awesome. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you. Anthony. Hey, um, my name is Anthony Patterson. Uh, Pronouns he, him, and his. Um, My relationship to Duke is I was an emerging documentary artist. in the Documentary Diversity Project at CDS. Um, Let's see, the other part of the question was, uh, what was it, Uh, interest, um, mediums of interest. I I paint, I do analog photography, Um, I do a little bit of everything, uh, curate, teach, uh, storytell, slash lecture, workshop. Um, I love history. So, uh, and par- particularly community history, and particularly more than that is uh, my community history here in Durham, which has a really interesting relationship with Duke. Um, I literally live two blocks away from Duke University Hospital and could probably jog and not break a sweat getting over to West Campus. So, um, uh, pretty, pretty close to Duke. Um, a lot of my family members work at Duke in the medical system and, um, yeah, we just, we walk there, we live close, and um, we have a lot of ties to the area. And what was it? Um, interesting fact about myself. I love vintage clothes. Um, I have quite a collection of vintage uh, champion sweatshirts from the 90s. Um, I started collecting things back in high school. Uh, My mom introduced uh, thrifting to us as children and 
ever since then, I've kind of loved being able to find those gems in thrift stores. So I think my most prized possession is I got this um, red uh, jacket that is a, it's a polo jacket from 1992. And Ralph Lauren had reissued some of the uh, things from that collection, but not the jacket. So I feel really special that I got like something officially from 92 that's not back out on the streets. And uh, just for the audience sake, you were born in what year? I was born in 1995. So that, that jacket is three years older than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's definitely. Awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, um, just for the listening audience, I remember, um, unfortunately, a, a, after the passing of Kobe, you pulled out some pretty amazing vintage gear. You want to talk, talk about that just a little bit? Uh, which which ones were you referring to? That's what I'm I, just saying. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So I do have uh, I have a couple of uh, Lakers t-shirts. One that has Magic, Kareem, and James Worthy on the front, and then um, I have a throwback um, t-shirt with the 2009-2010 Lakers on it um, with Kobe on there. And I'm glad because I remember watching that finals. It was. It was incredible for me, um, especially being a Lakers fan and Kobe being my favorite basketball player ever. Um, I tried to fade away like him and everything. So I'm glad I got something uh, to remember him by. That's awesome. That's awesome. You said James Worthy. So, I, you know, I <clears throat> have to acknowledge my Carolina heritage anytime you uh, you acknowledge, you know, some of the big ones. So anyway, uh, <laughs> getting off track. I'm getting off track. I'm getting off track. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so, you know, as we kind of deep dive into this, I'm a big believer that life finds the work that needs your specific hands. Given this, how did you all come to the work that you're doing now as makers in Durham? Um, and how do you feel that you are enacting change in the world? And why is that necessary? You could talk about the kind of work that you're making and what brought you to like, you know, what were the what were the motivations for you to start making work? You know, I, I think being an artist sometimes is not necessarily it's not a linear thing. You know, if you don't have somebody specifically in your life that is coaching you through it, um, I think sometimes you you have to stumble through and find your way into this space that you are you're making. So, you know, how did you come to find that, especially as an artist that's non-restrictive, how did you find that these mediums are things that needed your hands to be on them. Shay, do you mind kicking us off with that one? I think I first and foremost have to start by addressing the fact that uh, I personally have found through hindsight that like documenting what's going on around me and what is happening within me is something that comes innate. Um, recently, I've been touching a lot on just the fact that uh, like my granddad and my godparents and even my god mom's mother who I um, I refer to as Grammy. She has stories. They all have stories about me uh, drawing all the time. Like always needing to have a paper and a pencil in my hand. 
Um, my granddad in particular has a story about me tagging along with him to community meetings. And, um, of course, as a child, not really having a place in that city, so instead decided to just uh, doodle in the corner like he told me that uh, later on when you look back to what I drawn, it was just um, the setter, so like him at the round table with his buddies talking about whatever as it pertained to the community, which had to be the East Orange or Irvington at the time in New Jersey. Um, my god, mom had stories about me being frustrated about not having all my colored pencils <laughs> with me. Uh, just stuff like that, like, makes me realize that I've actually been creating since before I can remember. Um, as far as the different forms that started to show up in, like, I no longer just draw. Um, I'm also painting now. And as I touched on before, more currently, I'm getting back into fashion design and graphic design, which I enjoy a lot. Um, and intend to get into a bit of music production in the future and DJ and stuff like that. Like, all those things come and just, um, I don't know, like, I've, I've never been obedient in that I just, I've never believed that I, like, needed to get a job or do something in particular that society says you need to do in order to be successful. Like, I, I feel like I'm not going to do it if it doesn't feel good to me or feel right to me. Like, I think a lot of people closer to me would agree that you have a very hard time trying to get me to do something if I don't actually want to do it. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm blessed enough to be in the position where I have the access and the opportunity to be able to actually do what I want to do. But I was always going to want to do what I want right. to do. It's just, yeah, a matter of God that I'm actually able to do. So, so with that in mind, I mean, you have birthed some really engaging things like i mean if you just talked about your current show it's set at golden belt correct mm -hmm. okay yeah. so what i mean that's that's actively changing the way in which we see certain representations played out and even you're changing the way in which you wouldn't have hung that show you're changing the form and process of a finalized product which you know oftentimes between you know, art consumers and the artists, we don't get a chance to see art in process. We always see a final product. So you're even saying like, ah, I'm going to mess with this. So about, you know, what about that is one, motivating to you? And two, what about that do you think actually assists in telling a more holistic view of both your work and the bodies that are in representation in your work? Thing, well, really, the response 
throughout the process of installing and afterwards the reception I've been receiving, which has been positive, like towards what is uh, my work in progress, is what has really um, made me feel good or content about having done it in a way that I did it. Like I said, it was going to get done that way regardless just because I wanted it to be done that way, but it's good to know that what I did has, like other people have been un- able to understand it um, in the way that I do to an extent. Um, I think <clears throat> what I decided to do is important and I don't want to say groundbreaking because that's not cocky, but I do think what I've done is interesting and different in the way that it, it's definitely ahead of the curve. I get But I, I'm hoping that it allows space for a certain freedom to be had and felt amongst my viewers. Um, I feel like I just started thinking about this a few days ago, but I just feel like the quorum and like the kinds of just linear ways of thinking we have about the way things should be done is such bullshit. Mm. I I don't know. I feel like in that way, I'm here to lead by example and say that like, this is not the way something has to be done. It's not the way I'm going to do it. And I feel perfectly fine for not having done um, this traditional thing in the Mm -hmm. traditional way. Mm -hmm. Like, I think my work not being complete, but still like I've had comments about people saying like the show feels complete. Um, I feel like that's reflective of I don't know, the power of progress. And um, another one of the major things throughout the work is just about trying to sift through and figure out and understand the how being human is a complex state of being in itself. Like, it's, it's a never-ending state of learning and unlearning. So mm-hmm. I want... Um, the feeling of something being undone to be felt, whatever that feeling is, because I feel like that's something that can't necessarily be described or um, certain or put into too many words, but I think that's also the beauty in what I've made. Like, the show is about me trying to figure things out and connect dots and get through the day and win the day that Considering that today is a tragic one that we live in, especially if you are of a darker skin. Um, Mm. But I think ultimately my work, or at least my most recent work, is just about the power of acknowledgement. And a lot of times when I'm having uh, guests in there and I'm talking back and forth with them about the work 
I save my own interpretations for myself and let the viewer know, like, your interpretation of the work is just as important as whatever I was thinking when getting through it in this installment because I put an emphasis in the power of interpretation of the viewer. Like, that's part of what makes art art is that, you know, I was talking to a local rapper the other day, Jay Rashad, about this too. He said how once, as an artist, once the work is done, it's not really yours anymore. It's for the person. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I just, that was a lot. But I just try to make work that's all-encompassing of the emotional experience. And simply put, the emotional experience is kind of impossible to define. To me, that's kind of how the work feels right. impossible. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Goodness. <laughs> I feel bad for uh, either of you who's going to follow up with that. Just going to say that right now. <laughs> right. Anthony, you got it. Um, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so how'd you come to the work, Anthony? <laughs> Ah, okay, okay. We're gonna take the joke further. All right. <laughs> so um I came I come from a creative family. Um my dad is an artist. Um he always like whenever I speak about him, he always wants me to let people know that he graduated from ANT in seventy nine and he got his art degree. And um Aggie he bro. wanted he wanted me to be an Aggie so bad, but I went to an early college high school at Central. And then I went to Greensboro, but I went to UNCG. So he's like, oh, you should have been Aggie. So <laughs> my father is an artist. His genes are running all through his children. Um, I myself is an artist. Uh, my mother is also a creative. Um, whenever I used to, I used to ask her to draw Spider-Man for me whenever I couldn't get it right. <laughs> and she used to draw Spider-Man for me. And it used to be so dope. It did. Uh, my sisters, uh, my oldest sister is one of the biggest sneakerheads that I know. And she also draws. Uh, she's an 80s baby. So like she has a lot of the fundamental hip hop influences throughout her life, no matter if it's like the way that she writes her name to the colors that she wears and the music that she listens to. It breathes mm. through her and her children. Um, my niece uh, has been inspired to start drawing and taking pictures. I think she caught the photography bug from me from taking all these Polaroid pictures and things. And then the middle child, the sister that I have, her name is Kim and she is an interior designer. So we, we're just a whole creative Amazing. bubble. And um, I remember my mom used to tell me that uh, back in elementary school, she used to get calls from teachers who, um, who used to uh, say, you know, Anthony is, uh, he's drawing all over everything. And she was like, well, he's doing that at home too. Just give him some more paper. Like <laughs> he'll be okay. And um, so I just had this, this itch to create for since a child. But I think the content of my work has, has grown from just creating to create to mean something more substantial to me through history and through the things that my grandfather has inspired and instilled in me. Um, he was a huge proponent of making sure that we have black history books on our shelves at home and just him being a living legend and being uh, who he is and what he means to the Durham community. Um, just him being alive still is a huge 
inspiration to me. Mm. Um, he, a lot of people call him a civil rights hero. I look at him as just my grandfather. He does cool stuff, including being a civil rights hero. So um, he was on the forefront for- I like that. Yeah, he, he was on the forefront for um, preserving our community, uh, the Crest Street community here in Durham, which is only a few blocks away from Duke. Um, but the land that sits over here has been around since, 1863 and um, black people settled this land we worked this land and it was a place that was home for us and as the neighborhood grew and got incorporated into the city um it just created this this real family oriented neighborhood where everybody knew each other and there was a support system there there was a church that i believe it's the second oldest baptist church in durham um there was a school in the neighborhood and there were clubs in the neighborhood there was it was a real live community now then you come to the 60s and the 70s during the urban renewal period and the durham freeway was threatening our livelihood and so my grandfather along with the pastor of the church at the time who was reverend reed um, they joined forces together along with the rest of the community and fought to preserve the land that we have now and kind of redirect how the durham freeway would affect us as a whole so I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. And just looking at my community story as inspiration, I've been able to look at larger issues um, outside of the city of Durham and just be able to approach um, topics like gentrification and redlining and being able to relate um, to those conversations with my personal connection. That's, that's awesome. So you basically, this work found you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I don't think I really started diving into history um, until I probably turned about 18 or 19 um, because the history was omnipresent. It was always there. I just didn't tap into it. Um, you know, sometimes I would get haircuts with my granddad and people like, oh, your granddad is a good person. I'm like, you should have heard what he told me before you got out of the car. <laughs> you know, like he's, he's got some wild stories. <laughs> but like the, the thing that I... I, I noticed when I went to college and then I started coming back home, I started seeing the neighborhood change. And so seeing all of these new people and then seeing the elders of the community say, these young folks just, they don't know what we had to go through. And I said, you know, well, maybe if they knew, I'm like, you know, they're from a different side of town. They probably don't know what happened over here. And so with me knowing it, I became more like a local historian and just chopping it up with the new folks and, being able to let them know that we cherish this land that, that we live on. So, you know, let's, let's do things a little differently. So yeah, the work definitely found me. Do you find that you're the things you make oscillate very much in part around? I know the, the documentary that you did for um, your certificate at the center for documentary studies. Yes. That's a shameless plug for the fact that you should be a certificate student at center for documentary studies anyway uh but i know the documentary that you did for the certificate uh at cds um was about the crest street process specifically your grandfather so do you find that the rest of your work kind of oscillates in that same space i think so i think that a lot of the work that i do has the soul of that project um and it just just breathes through other things i've also um did work about the Wilmington coup of 1898 and um, just that importance of, of 
telling history and retelling history and rediscovering it and approaching it from a different lens, I think is something that I put into other um, avenues in my work. Um, I just like uh, being able to just tell these stories and, and remember what happened before me. Cause I mean, I'm only 26 and you know, I, I feel like I'm at least double that age, if not more in soul. So I want my soul and right. all of that to just live through all of my work. Mm-hmm. So Brittany, mm-hmm. I mean, you're also Durham native. Right. You're also, you know, you're in the same thing where the work is finding you, mm-hmm. you know, Talk about it. you already told us a little bit about you know having to learn to make your own way, literally right. learning how to read music. So like I would imagine that in that same vein, you're taking this this you know self starter nature into this making that is calling you to it. Tell us about how you got there. Yeah, so similar to Shay and Anthony, um, for me, I, I was always writing. I always had a pen in my hand to just write, write, write. Um, and like, like as a child, I knew that I enjoyed writing. Um, but I don't know if I like reflected on what it actually did to me and for me. I just knew Mm. that I enjoyed writing, creating stories, getting stuff out of my head. Um, and as I'm getting older, you know, my writing is getting more vulnerable, is getting more intimate, um, is telling some, some, traumatic stories, is telling some joyful stories, it's, you know, it's a different um, picture as I'm getting older. And honestly, I didn't see myself as an artist. Honestly, I did not see myself as an artist until about a couple years ago um, when I became an emerging documentary artist. Um, just being around people who just shared, being around people who taught me how to look at art and how to look at, you know, my relationship with art and how to, you know, right. look at it differently and like unlearn what it means to be an artist and what it means to create and produce work. Um, so once I unlearned some things, I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, I have been doing this. My, I have been doing this, you know, most of my life. So yeah, I, right. I am an artist. I am a writer. Um, and once I started acknowledging that, um, I definitely moved different. But, you know, my work is just speaking truth to your past and speaking truth to your past will help you liberate yourself and others. Um, so that's, mm. that's the season that I've been in for myself. Um, and that's so hard for me personally. That's hard for my family because we all like my family has a hard time keeping secrets like they love they love to keep secrets. Love to keep secrets. I'm like, it could be something that the whole family, we need to know. Why is it a secret? Right, right, and right. I, I feel like as a family member, as an artist, like it's my responsibility to, to shine some light on some things, whether it's going to hurt hurt us or not. Like we just need to shine the light, pull the curtains back. Um, and that way, that way we can be our fullest self. So that's right. that's where I'm at with my work. Right. Now, that's that's really interesting. I, and I know that a lot of artists experience that, especially when you start to deep dig into mm-hmm. your family's past. You know, there's this this propensity to to kind of shy away from telling that story in that way. Right. And I think in some regards, it's part of the reason why we've ended up with exploitation as a feature. You know, if you've had access to cameras and, 
you know, writing instruments and whatever your entire life, you're like, I don't want to tell that story because, you know, that's going to make me mom mad. Like, you know, whatever. Right. So I'm going to go tell this story across the street because I don't have anything to do with that. I think that's part of the reason that we've ended up with exploitative, you know, documentary storytelling as a, as a feature. So, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, you are constantly in a state of negotiating what you're trying to do within your work, right. especially when you're talking with your family right. about that. You know, what are some of the things that you are having to hold as you're working through like, okay, I'm gonna put this on this page. What's your responsibility to your family when that happens? So before I can even answer that question, I can definitely um, say that in regards to myself. Like, I feel like mm. I'm still trying to figure it out with myself. Like, I, I struggle with censoring myself um, because I've been raised to keep things a secret and keep things, un, you know, covered. And, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'm trying to unlearn that with myself, you know, honestly. Um, I'll sit down and, you know, my intentions is to, to write, you know, a creative piece and about whatever. And I, you know, I'm just struggling to get what I want on the paper because of some unknown fear, you know, like, so I'm still, right, I'm right, still right. learning that and learning that I'm working through that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fair. And that's what I, and, and I'll be honest with you. I think that that's. All of you are doing work that is refining itself daily. Heck, sometimes it's every hour. Right. You, you'll be working on something and you'll be like, aha, I figured it out. And you'll be like, go 30 minutes. You'll be like, wait, 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 aha, I figured it out. Like, you're going to keep having that experience. And I think that, uh, to be honest with you, the most compelling and most engaging work is work which is constantly renewing its definition. And so part of the reason I want to talk to all three of you is because I know you're constantly renewing the internal definition of the thing that you're making or the people you're interacting with or, or the why you came to this thing. So, um, you know, it, it's when we, when we think about something like constant renewal of definitions, we have to think about who's been allowed to define things and who's been included in what that definition is. Um, and I think that it's a really great segue into, you know, the, the purpose of the just base committee, um, and what we're trying to kind of get at with relation to uh, Duke and Durham, you know, we're trying to understand what anti-racism looks like in those communities. And so, you know, what, how do you define something like anti-racism? Um, and so, you, you know, Anthony, do me a favor. Tell me, you know, from a personal and artistic point of view, how you define anti-racism and how does that work that you make, you know, represent and define and live in this definition? Yeah, I, I believe that anti-racism uh, works in about two ways, at least. Um, one is like a, it's a radical form of resistance and that resistance is to the status quo and to how things have been in the past. And then uh, for us as, as black people, or as people of color, people affected by racism and systematic oppression, um, it's just being like, if you just leave us alone and just be, so it's a it's a balance between both fighting and being still. Um, there's peace and stillness, and I and I hope to imagine and I strive to create things that analyze life without restrictions, and just really look at like what if I always end up asking myself like what if this never happened like what would that be, 
I found myself asking that question mm. as I dove into uh, the Wilmington work. Um, you know, for folks that didn't know before, prior to 1898, uh, Wilmington was the largest city in North Carolina. And it was Black Wall Street before Tulsa. It was that before Durham. Matter of fact, um, our Black Wall Street got popping in 1898. So, like, just look at how many things were, were going on before we even knew what that term meant. So this port city on the on the on the eastern side of North Carolina was popping and black people were owning businesses and and controlling things. The only person that was handing out loans in the city of Wilmington was a black man named Thomas C. Miller. So like mm -hmm. this is the kind of city that we're talking about. And then for white supremacists to be jealous and have so much hatred in their hearts to see black people not only being the majority of the city or having businesses and restaurants, but now getting representation in government. Now it was, that was the tip of the iceberg for them. They, they needed to go ahead and just clear everything out. <clears throat> so I wonder like what would have Wilmington been if not for the coup of 1898? <clears throat> so I, I constantly find myself asking right. that question. No, that's a, that's a very fair position. Because you, you know, I think this is where we get into the black radical imagination, right? And in some, in some ways, we think about people like Octavia Butler, who gave us the ability to think, like, well, let's speculate. Let's see what what does it look like. What is what is a what is an Afrofuturistic, you know, imagining of Wilmington had from that moment, you know, the coup never happened. Would we all be Wilmington? Will we all be living in Wilmington? Will we be seafarers? Would I like the beach? Because I don't like the beach. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Especially going out there. It's <clears throat> it's a little uh it's a little weird out there. And what I discovered is that weirdness in the air, it was honestly just undealt with trauma. Um mm. from looking at a lot of books uh about the coup. A lot of authors named this this silence about that coup as the riot mentality, where a lot of black folks ain't really talk about it, and white folks wanted to focus on just building the economy. But how can you build the economy when the economy was built off of a slave economy, especially in the port city? Like, I mean, one of the streets that leads right up to the to the Cape Fear River is called Market Street. Now, what was on the market? You know, so. Mm -hmm. That's something that I always look at and say, wow, like people really wanted to redirect from this dark past into something that they can kind of bring people in. Like, oh, we got the beach by here, we got the river walk and all of this stuff. But if you're walking down that by that river and you hear these stories of like what what people would say or what people how people feel about that river, you know, it would drastically change your perception of that city. And I think that anti-racist work needs more of that that reckoning. You know, we have to deal with these things and we have to find solutions to be able to, you know, go back and fix things um, and to do it in a way that is that is very um, acceptable and that really helps out the people that were affected by these things. So, you know, that's how I'm implementing anti-racist work in there and also just being myself fully um, in these spaces and trying not to overcomplicate things. Um, I remember when I did have 
a show in Wilmington and a reporter came out just with their sound recorder already on and asking me all of these questions. And I quickly shut her down because I'm like, I'm trying to just absorb the moment and feel the spirit of the magnitude of the work that I was doing. I'm like, let me just absorb this right now. Like, don't, don't talk to me right now. And that is an act of mm. anti-racist work is just resisting that, that pull to want to be seen and be treated as an object and then talk about these, this artwork as if it's just another object on the wall. So I'm constantly trying to find ways to where I can be myself. I can also feel the work that I'm making because most of the times I'm, I'm making the work and I'm feeling it, but it hits different when it's, when it's done right. or like when it's being presented. So when I'm able to step back from the right. work and really absorb it, it just, it soaks in me. Right. No, that's wow. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, Brittany, how do you define anti-racism um, artistically, personally? Yeah. So I think for me, I would definitely define it as acknowledging one that it, racism exists um, and then dismantling um, racism and white supremacy um, in the ways and dismantling it generally and in the ways that it show up um, in us. Um, yeah. And artistically, I, I wrote a couple pieces a while back. Um, yeah, so I think, I think I, anti-racism, I think it shows up in my work through my poetry. Um, and I have a, I wish, I wish I pulled it out before we started. Um, in my <laughs> zine, I have a poem called Dirty White Forces. Um, and it was about this, this white girl that I had saw rocking some dirty white forces. I'm like, bruh, come on, man. Like, if you don't have some white wow. forces, why are they going to be dirty? Like, come on. <laughs> so, they going out sad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Y'all ain't, ain't never heard of no toothbrush? <laughs> okay. Little water? <laughs> so, like, that's dish soap. Right. <laughs> Palm out, palm all of if you please. <laughs> yes. Um, within that piece, I was just writing about all of the dirty white forces that you know I and other black mm. and brown people have to experience daily. Mm. Um, and yeah, that was just a creative spin that I that I used. I mean, sometimes you have to have a vehicle, right? Right, and. You got to have something that people can actively see and hold on to, mm -hmm. especially in situations where you're having a conversation of things that have been abstracted intentionally to be unseen. Right. Um, and, and so I'm very curious, you know, if, if you're writing about something that's like that, you know, I feel like a lot of people could just be, look at you and say, well, why are you clowning her for those shoes rather than well, okay, the thing you're saying is actually deeper than that. I feel like folks could get hung up on the surface. Right. How do you how do you keep your audience from being skin deep? How do you get them to go deeper than that? Well, I would say that if you're going to be stuck on her shoes, then most likely it wasn't for you in a sense. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. if you're black like if you're if you are if you look like me, 
And I tell you, a white girl's rocking some dirty white horses. You're going to get, like, you're going to be like, what, what? Like, you're not trying, you're going to be like, what? You're not going to be too focused on the fact that if I present to you my actual creative piece, Dirty White Forces, you're not going to be stuck on the fact that, that she was wearing the Dirty Forces. You may be interested in, like, connecting on, man, you experience, this, you experience these White Dirty Forces daily, just like me. Like, you may, we may connect on that level instead of being stuck on the White Dirty Forces. I feel like, yeah, if, if you can't move past that, then... It's not for you, you know. If you know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's a very Tony Morrison approach to your writing, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I I appreciate that. You know, you know, our uh, Tony Morrison is quoted saying, um, you know, when she was uh, talking about uh, Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, she made the statement of invisible to who is that book is about a black man who is not being seen by his white peers. So invisible to who? And so I, I just, I appreciate that. I think it's, it's very easy, especially as makers for folks to glam onto things that are the obvious things. And you're like, you are missing the meat and potatoes of this meal. You are over here trying to eat the napkin and I'm trying to give you the meat and potatoes of this meal. <laughs> so, well, okay. Can I say, can I say one more thing? Please do. Please yeah, yeah. Do. Um, one thing that I've always like really, I really enjoy like learning and then sharing what I learn with people who may or may not have access to the same things that I learn, um, and just spinning it in a different way that they would definitely understand. Um, so, take my brother for instance. He he may not read some poetry, but if he come across a poem that says "Dirty White Forces." Just, right. just by the title, he may be more interested to read it, and therefore, we are connecting on a deeper level by him reading that poem. And because, yeah, right, yeah, I'm sure he's also offended. That's why he read it. He's like offended. How you gonna have dirty white forces? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Man, that draws him in. Right. It's the hook. It's the hook. Right. Right. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I think that that actually speaks to the the experience i mean kind of what you know anthony was talking about you know there's a lot of undealt with trauma and sometimes there's trauma surrounding the medium by which the ingestion needs to happen so if you if reading was something that was forced on you and it wasn't something that you were celebrated in you're not going to just willfully choose to pick up a book even though that's something that we say like there's, there are jokes about within the black community, you know, if you need to hide money, stick it in your books. Like there are jokes about that because of the stereotypes right. of non-education and stuff like that. Even though some of the most learned people ever have come from black and brown communities. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, you're, you're almost choosing to turn that on its head. You're like, I'm going to use some, an object that I know you know about. And I'm going to talk about it in a way that is denigrating to draw you in right. to pay attention to the other side of the conversation that I really want to have. Right. So, yeah, I'll, that's fantastic. That's that's the that's the play. That's the when you are a maker, you get to play in space and see how quickly you can get folks to play along with you. Right. So 
Shay, how do you define anti-racism in your work and in your life? Well, I think my existence in and of itself defines anti-racism mm. because I am a being constantly and consistently learning and embracing my own fullness. And racism in its purpose in history has tried to erase the fullness and possibility of me and the people that look like me. Mm. Um, so artistically, I'm communicating with the world about my own full and complex human experience, which for better and worse, will be colored as a black experience simply because I am black. And this will hopefully color and texture not just the black experience, but also history in a broader sense. Um, right. With the work that I'm making, I'm hoping to keep up the work and the long line of black artists who whose work has been about documented black people as beings and not just things that could be dealt with and dismissed. Mm. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I know you kind of leaned on this a little bit earlier. Uh, just with relation to the way that you're making your work, you're trying to be, I don't want to say countercultural. I think that you're just trying to be free. And freedom is perceived as countercultural because we live in constant oppression. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I, I just am taking that away from some of the stuff you had said earlier. Um, is there a lens of liberation that you're constantly thinking about while you're making? Or do you just make and it happens to exude liberation? I don't know. I think more than anything, subconsciously, I'm always weighed down by the fact that, or thinking of the fact that, like, I was just thinking about this this morning, like, me and my peers. Most of us come from parents who have had to survive and know mm. little outside of that. So my goals are always speaking to this hope to one day be able to people who don't have to think so much about surviving, but who are more concerned with living in that state of being like. Mm. So from me to like my baby sister, who I talk about a lot, to my other siblings who grew up like me and haven't had it as easy, or um, even circling back to my mom and my elders, people who I know haven't had the opportunity to not worry about where the next meal is coming from, or if we're going to be able to afford the place that we live in or just things like that, like I'm trying the best that I can to open up spaces where the fuller meaning of life can be talked about and thought about and not 
be realized as something that's that we're worthy of and that's a right and not just not a luxury because it's not a luxury. I feel like if you're here, then your purpose. Like, I think mm. there's too many of us who are here and feel like they have to question why. Right. Um, and I'm almost ashamed that I'm of a people, of a tribe of people who, um, were born with the knowledge that to to be here in love itself should mean that you were meant to be here, but then we're stripped of that knowledge and have had to unlearn and relearn things that, you know, put that feeling back into place. So mm-hmm. yeah. My goal is to make people feel like into to re-educate people on the fact that being here is, I don't know, a right is something that's that's given and it's something that should be acknowledged as being a given. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. That's a whole word. Right. Amen. That's a whole word. Um, and in, in, in large part, you all three have kind of touched on this next question, but I don't know if anybody has anything they want to expand on. How do you define just space or spatial justice artistically? Who does the work that you find yourself making these days hold space for? That's open to anybody who wants to go first. I'll take it um, first. I think for me, um, as being a creative that often exhibits in, in spaces where a lot of people, you know, don't really feel comfortable. For instance, like a gallery. How many times have we walked into a gallery, no matter if it's a normal local art gallery or a high price museum, and you saw people walking around with their hands behind their back or just kind of acting a little persnickety, right? There's a, a certain mm-hmm. expectation to be in this space and you're supposed to feel sophisticated because you're looking at these pieces of work. But then, you know, to me, when I look at the work and if it doesn't relate to anything that I might um, experience, particularly like if it's in a really high price museum, like if I don't feel a certain connection to the work other than, oh, it's important to art history, then it makes me question a lot of things like what kind of art history and who made this and how much does it cost and why is it in here? And why does the walls all have right. to be white? And why does the floors right. have to be white? You know, like, why is this space so sterile? It reminds me of a hospital. And mm. it's, it's like, what, like, why am I in here? It doesn't really make any sense. So how I approach uh, a lot of the ways that I exist in spaces is the names of my shows um, and artworks are something that can be pretty relatable. Like I did a show at um, the North Carolina School for Science and Math um, here in Durham. And the name of the show was Have You Heard? I remember the curator was like, why are you naming it that? I was like, because that's how normal people speak. And I want people that looks like me to be able to say, oh, I can go into this school that is, you know, is designed for students that really love science and math to, to be able to say, oh, I can go in there and see some of my homies work. 
And so also with that mm. is um, looking at the wall text. Again, being in museums and gallery spaces, you have wall text right beside the artwork. And nine times out of 10, that, that wording on there is gonna be super professional to the point where you may not even really understand what is going on. It sounds like it came right out of the textbook. Rather than to me, I show that I know what I'm talking about, but it's gonna be very concise. And so I blend language so that I don't lose people with language. I, I'd like to keep my, my statements pretty short um, when it comes to exhibition statements because you'll experience the fullness of the work when you're in the space. I just have to write something that'll get you in there. And it doesn't have to be super like, let's try to get you in here, we got all this food and stuff. Not like I'm trying to promote something that's entertainment, but just trying to get to the meat of it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, imagine if you was eating some fried fish and you didn't know it had bones in it. Now you're choking and you need a little something to help you get that that bone down a little bit. You know what I'm right. saying? Like you need a little assistance. So the way that I write my work is trying to make sure that we can get some assistance so that we can be able to comfortably be in these spaces as well as making sure that my work represents people that look like me, um, using skin tones that look like me, uh, titling the work a certain way, doing programs that make sure that we're able to use art as a medium for larger discussions. Because for me, I kind of, sometimes I put, let the artwork stay second in order for the conversation that I want to have to be first. And um, right. with that approach, I think that a lot of people want to come because art is that, that dope medium that like, you see it and you look at it aesthetically and it's aesthetically pleasing and then we can go right into the work as a good transition and segue. No, all that makes sense, all that makes sense. I think, especially, and you, you know, there's some similarities in uh, kind of the, the statement of anti-racism that Brittany was talking about and how you're approaching the use of gallery space. How do I signal to you that this is a space for you? You don't have no desire to be here normally. How do I tell you without saying this is a space expressly for black and brown folks? Like, how do I say that to you without saying it to you? Right. Because uh, there's so much veiled language that we're constantly coming up against that signals to other folks that it's a space of prestige and it's a space of whatever that means that it's a space that is sans black and brown people, you know, or low income folks or queer folks or whatever. There's a lot of that that exists. So the ability to to kind of take that and turn it on its head and engage in the same way. Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely see that. Yeah, because the thing is, we we know our own experiences. And if you grew up around people that you want to be in your show, you know the kind of things that you would want if you weren't the artist in there. Like you would want to pull in the kind of things that that we can look at as being almost inside jokes or like what Brittany said, you know, if you know, you know. And it's a way to it's a way to resist the the polishing and professionalism that ends up being tokenism in the end, you know, just to have a black body in the space. So that's an act of resistance um right there. Comparison to other spaces that call themselves public, I want my the spaces I create that actually feel welcome to the fuller version of everyone. I think that a lot of spaces in society 
may say that they are welcome at the public, but due to things like the forum and stuff like that, like mm-hmm. <clears throat> a lot of times that's just not true. Like right. we even within ourselves, we only a lot of times allow a specific version of ourselves to show up. So my goal is to be a part of creating a world where like checking in on people, doing everything within within your capacity to make sure that people feel seen and heard is the new norm or the new tradition. Rather than mm. depending on whatever guidelines and unspoken rules that have been set um, to like define or keep in check like the people that you have in a space. Like I think about that a lot just around this one unspoken rule we have about being quiet in specific Mm. spaces like galleries and things like that and the stereotype that black people get about being loud. I even had to a lot of times check myself about that, like looking at people differently for being loud. It's weird that that's even a thing. Like I I feel like more spaces need to exist where we just allow people to be. Um and acknowledge the fact that Yes, we as a people want equality, but that doesn't mean that we want our differences to not be acknowledged. So um, there are different ways that we display excitement and interest and happiness. And so like to put a set of specific rule on how an emotion should be displayed is not realistic and it's not Mm. humane I don't think because it's not giving space to the full human range of emotion Um, so Mm. like sometimes in the space where my exhibit is held I play music sometimes I don't Um, I'm not strict about the level of noise in the gallery, even though my studio is right beside it, I don't really care. I noticed that by default, a lot of people when they came come into the space, they are quiet, and I know that that is due to unspoken rules that have been made. So I don't know. That's something that I think about. Like moving forward, how do I construct this space where people don't feel like they have to tiptoe? Or like mm. feel like the space and what it has meant traditionally is too pristine for them to to be in or to feel welcome in. I was about to say I, I do just as a quick follow up to your particular work. I do remember definitively when you did the walkthrough. I know that we're in COVID time, so you know my preference would have been to physically be in the room. But when I did do the walkthrough, uh, you had you have music on 
and you were like, it changes, you know, there's a depends on the mood kind of deal. What music are you putting into that room? Because even in gallery spaces where there is something playing, oftentimes it's the classics that you're listening to. And when I say classics, I mean old white dead dudes who are playing piano or orchestration of, you know, uh, strings of some nature, you know, Brahms, Mozart, Beethoven, Lentz, those kinds of folks. What are you listening to in your space? In my space or the exhibit? Well, really both, but, you know, let's do the exhibit first. I think the last thing I played in the gallery was this is Control album. Um, that's just something that I wanted to hear when I came in that day. But yeah, it's in the Gambit. Um, a playlist I like that my little brother made. And my little brother, not my blood, but he's my little brother. Um, there's a playlist that Anthony made for his show that I played I played in there. Um, J-Rock Redemption album I played in there. Uh, Kendrick I played in there for Kendrick. Um, house music, a lot of house music, uh, specifically Cantronada. Um, I played some Black Milk instrumental albums. Um, I try to play stuff without words just so, like, the viewer isn't distracted too much. Like when they're trying to think about what the work means and they're reading the notes and all that good stuff. So house music, for that reason, is my go-to. Also, I just like house music. House music is mm-hmm. native to to Jersey and the culture here. That is my my thing. So I gravitate towards that vibe. But and yeah, like lately, more personally, I've been just listening. I don't know why, but Redemption was just a really good album. So I like it. I, I feel like that's an objective statement. <laughs> All right. Um, so, I, I, you know, I want to jump down for a hot second. I do want to talk about the relationship between uh, Duke and Durham. Um, given that you all three are residents uh, and have basically almost all three of you are pretty close to native. I know uh, Shay, you're from New Jersey originally, but no. If you're comfortable answering this, in what ways have you experienced harm as a Durham resident from Duke University? Well, everybody think for a second before I just start asking people. And I do want to be mindful of the clock. We got 20 minutes left. I think I think I can answer that. Um, when I first came into um, the Center for Documentary Studies, uh, Courtney Reedy in reminded me of something that 
I hadn't really thought about as much, but since have thought about a lot. And what she said is, she said, what happened in your community, especially because the community sits so close to Duke West Campus, people are gonna wanna talk to you about your work and what you do and the history behind it. And it's on you to understand how much or how little you really want to share about that community as a protection of your community because you grew up there and you know the people there and it's a part of who you are. So being able to navigate on um, the stories or adjust fitting on, you know, just sitting on or depending really on um, what what the situation is, is something that I've had to kind of figure out. Uh, I think the most recent uh, form that I've had, and it's not necessarily specific to Duke, but it was it was kind of in conjunction with something that on that was semi-related. So I was speaking to the city, the city of Durham's um, equitable engagement team, and they had knew that I was a part of Center for Doc Studies, and they wanted me to dive into a lot of the history and asking me, you know, about like how did I find these resources and everything. And one of the things that, you know, I did was I did tell them a little bit of history of like one of the structures in the neighborhood, but then I took that opportunity while there were maybe about 80, 90 people on this live Zoom call to really address the discomfort that I had with having elders from around Durham talk about our communities and our stories. Not all of them having something that can be proud of, but really just relinquishing and, and hashing out our trauma. You know, just I took that opportunity to really address the fact that you cannot fit our history within a 10 minute time block on an hour Zoom call. And I said that I hope that after this, y'all really make some connections to the people in the communities and do something truly that would be equitable and not just use equity as a buzzword. So that was probably a moment where I had to kind of look in and think like, am I a part of something that is being performative or can I use this opportunity to really address what's going on and put them on the hot seat? And um, I'm glad I did so because that has been aired on the local uh, Durham TV network and, uh, and the people that have saw it has been people from my community and they said, you represent us well, and thank you for doing what you did because I agree exactly 100% with what you said. And so that gives me confirmation and, I, and I'm proud to represent where I'm from. Anyone else? Um, I guess the first thought that I had, I won't dig too deep, um, but the first thought that I had was, you know, I'm from I'm from Durham, um, and my relationship to Duke has always like I've always felt excluded um, from Duke. Um, even like driving around their campus, <laughs> it's just so like private and like if you don't, it's really for if you know, you know. If you don't know, you ain't right. supposed to know. Um, right. And that's how it's always been. Like even as a child. Um, we rarely went over to Duke's campus, um, didn't feel like I was welcome to go over to 
Duke's campus. It's, I don't believe that there was any, at least I didn't go to any events on Duke's campus. Um, so yeah, I just felt like there was no genuine strong connection with Duke and Durham, at least the black Durham and Duke for me personally growing yeah. up. Right. Yeah. And then once I became an emerging documentary artist and I switched from being on the outside of Duke and started being on the inside of Duke, I mean, it just, I don't know. I, I felt that even, even more, you know, it was, it didn't change now that I was on the inside. I just felt it even worse, you know, mm. and ex excluded. Normally, I would ask more probing questions, but I don't. I don't feel comfortable to do that. Just, just gonna unless you give me permission, I'm not going to. Um, okay, uh, Shay, I'm gonna give you a little bit of space. Again, don't feel obligated to say anything if you are not wanting to share. I don't know. I never really had a, any relationship with Duke um, directly. Well, I guess that within itself you could interpret that as um, being harmful. But I come from a background that like disillusioned me of who I am in the world and specifically in this country very early. And it's a blessing and a curse because I feel like in comparison to my peers, I don't have a lot of shock or, you know, expectation around the ways in which white supremacy and whiteness function. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I also don't hold any expectations or, you know, desires about the way that I want white people and their institutions to treat me. Um, I spent a lot, have spent a lot of my life and spend, continue to spend a lot of my life avoiding those places and those spaces because I know they aren't for me. Uh, so yeah, I guess there's some harm in that, but this is there. It's more subconscious than anything because I constantly haven't been allowing and don't plan to allow those places and you know certain people to imprint onto me. Right, and that's all right. intention. And I've I've learned to be learned to have that kind of intention from people like the person that comes to mind is my granddad. But yeah, now that's a that's actually a really good segue um, into kind of two questions. I'm going to run two questions together and give you an opportunity to answer um, both accordingly. You know, you're as, as Black Durham artists of different life experiences, nuanced backgrounds, gender identities, ages, and so much more. How do you find space for yourself to show up in your own work? 
Um, and I know this also this may be in flux. Uh, I think that's one of the things that as artists, you're always changing what that designation may look like. Um, and then I guess the other thing is thinking about that, often there's a move towards fetishization of black art. Uh, and I'm drawn specifically to the black exploitation era when talking about much of this. Uh, I have found as a black artist myself that until recently, much of black and brown art has been deemed not valuable white audiences unless it lives in a space of fantastic tragedy. Um, what ways have you found your art being co-opted against you? And then how do you kind of counteract that narrative? How do you push back against that uh, and confront directly white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, and gender norms, especially here in Durham? So I think that those two questions kind of go hand in hand. One is how you express yourself and then in expressing yourself, how you have to push back so that you can allow your expression to be what you want your expression to be rather than what other people should perceive your expression to be or other people want you want to dictate your expression to be. I think that's a better way to phrase that. Um, Britt, do you, uh, you mind leading us off on that one? I don't know. I don't know if this answers your question, but this is what is swirling around in my head. So I'm just going to say it. Um, one of the things that I like find liberating is driving in my car and listening to music at the loudest, uh, loudest volume. And like just being in that moment and enjoying it. I don't care who's pulling up to the left and to the right of me. I'm in that moment. This is my music. This is my car. Leave me alone. And like that's, that's just my biggest, biggest like joy and, and form of like liberation. Um, and like we were talking about, you know, anti-racism anti and like pushing back, um, with white supremacy and yeah so that's one of the ways that i like show up and say i don't care um and this is how i'm expressing myself and this is how you know i'm showing up in this moment right um but huh. yeah this is a question that i definitely have to think about and dissect um because i really even though i do a lot of reflecting um I really haven't spent a lot of time reflecting with my creative self, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because I'm still like, I'm, I feel like in this season, I'm in a space of unlearning and learning who I am as a person. Um, so yeah, thank you for the question. I'll definitely be thinking about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna come back and ask you that question <laughs> in a year. Okay. I'm gonna ask okay. you in a year. Okay. Respect, respect. One year. Respect. <laughs> All right. Shay, what you got? I feel like wherever there is a lack of form, I find myself like I find myself in words. I find myself in music. I find myself in feeling the atmosphere. So I don't really I don't know. I don't feel like there's a lot of words being thrown around to describe things like gender and sexuality and, you know, race and stuff like that. But I, I don't, I never really feel like any of those things could ever really truly define me. So I, mm. some of those words I embrace, some of those labels I, I use and um, 
accepting towards many of them being called them because I know that's how, as people, we're able to understand one another. Like someone outside of me needs those those words to understand them. Right. But I don't use those things to describe myself when I think of myself. Um, so in my work, like this latest exhibit was very word heavy and I was very heavy on technique and just the different things that I was trying the way I put things together because um, doing things with my hands is a release for me and it like it I feel like the way that I try to show you how I'm literally piecing things together like in my work there's a lot of collage and that's to say that right. um, a lot of times that's how I feel I feel like I'm an amalgamation of so much I feel like we all mm. as a people are an amalgamation of so much so I try to translate that as best as I can and a lot of times that shows up in different forms of patchwork um, yeah Different forms of patchwork. I like that. I think it, I think my answer is a combination of both Britney's and Shay's. Um, I think how I show up for myself is I want in a space, no matter if it is a space that I curate on my own or if it's out in the public, I want my presence and my hands to be felt. So Shay had touched on um, like a uh, playlist and the playlist that I believe Shay might've been referencing, was it the AP full circle one, Shay? Yeah. That one, I took my time and literally wanted to make a story of vibes that take you through a journey between each song. And by the time it starts out with songs that address this issue, and by the time you get to the end, you feel better you feel soulful you feel much more uh you feel like you have a, a hug around you at least and for me i just want my presence to be felt and sometimes and, and i would say you know what i would say that it would be even like how i dress i might pull like matter of fact i pulled up to a to a screening of a film that was associated with one of my shows in full-blown sweats and a chain, hair looking, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was dope, but like, I was myself. I had my nice sneakers on. I wanted to feel myself. I didn't, the first two years that I was doing shows, I would put on my loafers and all of that stuff. And now I'm like, uh-uh, like, uh-uh, I'm pulling up in sweats. Like, that's that's how I'm feeling. I might even pull up with my hair in two puff balls and, and paint something. And I might write some rap lyrics on the wall. So I want to let I want it to be evident that Anthony was there. Or as a lot of people call me AP, I want people to be like, oh, that's some AP shit right there. Like I, I already know he did that. So like that's how I want to show up is so that if I ride by or if I walk by, I know that I did it, as well as people that know me know that I did it as well. Um just unapologetically me, making sure that I can, that all of that essence is in there, all of it. And I love how in, in a large part, you answered 
the the second half of this question because the way that you all are showing up is pushing back against being fetishized is pushing back against being, being co-opted um yeah and, and you know and shay you even said it yourself you know like there are words and labels that some i ascribe to some i don't you know that's just what it is um and i think that that's one of the things that is most telling of the momentum that we have we've kind of been getting at like and shay i think you got at a little bit pretty extensively yourself like how do we move ourselves from survival to living how do we do that and this is how it happens it's it's the giving yourself the ability to drive with your music up as loud as you want and be like bump y'all i'm this is my jam right now you know it's showing up to your own show dressed how you want to be dressed not dressed to meet and match an expectation of other people and it's being able to realize that like i get to be who i want to be there's nobody who gets to tell me how that shows up it's i'm the one so today i might feel like orange tomorrow i might like green but sure if you need a label call it colors (laughs) that's what it is thank you thank you so much for joining us for this episode of space of justice if you like what you heard today be sure to stop by sites.duke.edu backslash just space for the recordings of this past year's just space week Duke University's conference centered entirely on the conversation of spatial justice. This year, Just Space was focused on anti-racism, equity, and connecting Duke to Durham in meaningful and just collaborations. Head over to sites.duke.edu backslash justspace backslash conference to check out the recordings today. A special thanks to Brittany Barbie, Shay Hendricks, and Anthony Patterson for talking us through being three black makers and sharing experiences between Duke and Durham. To find out more and support today's guest work, please be sure to head over to www.aipatterson.com to catch Anthony and find Shay on the gram at Shay on display. That's S-H-A-Y on display. Today's episode was logistically possible because of the brilliance of El Moriana, Paige Vinson, and Lindsay Miller-Furness. Our web presence is possible only because Tara Cardi makes it so. Francesca Santos and Matt Stark are the genius minds behind our assessments and analytics. To the fearless podcast team of editors and collaborators that consist of Samaya Faison, Ling Jin, Ezra Uzan Mason, Brian Lackman, as well as the Just Based Conference Chair who pulled double duty this year, Kevin Erickson, thank you so much. Also, a special thanks to Marcy Edenfield's crew for making sure our equipment specs are just right. Just Based Conference marketing is handled by the Illuminous Sarah Neff. Sam Babb's keen eye keeps us all looking perfect and synchronized. Catherine Lester Bacon and Victoria Krebs ensure our online learning design is tight. As always, Jeff Nelson and Jenna McCullers are the tireless captain and first mate of the Just Space Committee. Tasha Curry Corquin is kind enough to ensure that the Office of Student Affairs at Duke University keeps us going one more turn around the sun. Our theme song, Yoriba, is by Lasana Debete, and engineering and mix of today's episode is by yours truly. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for the next episode. 
a special non-sponsored shout out to Zencaster for making it possible for our team to do remote recording sessions safely while in an international health crisis. Always, please remember to continue to wear your mask and wash your hands. And although the vaccines are here, remember we're not quite at the finish line. Also, be sure to get your questions answered so when it's your turn to get the shot, you can. As always, it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you today, and I can't wait to see you next week. I'm Michael Betts Second, and this has been Space of Justice. <laughs>